You're listening to In The Company, a podcast about humanizing work and designing better working lives. Each episode is curated to provoke you to think more deeply about things that matter in your career and life and how to build your toolkit for how to thrive as a human in business today. We explore how we work from the inside out. I'm Kylie Lewis, and it's great to be in your company. Welcome. Today we're in the company of Kemi Nekfapel. Kemi is a coach, speaker and author. From starting her career as a baker in the UK, she moved to acting, which took her overseas. However, after some time, she went back to baking and chefing, which then led her to Thailand, where she met her husband. Her husband and her ended up in Australia, and during that time, she pioneered the raw food movement. She now coaches women to nourish themselves beyond the food they eat, to live empowered, fulfilling lives by embracing more than their dress, their age, and their appearance. Kemi is the author of Raw Beauty Queen, and her latest book is The Gift of Asking. Welcome, Kemi. Thank you very much for having me, Kylie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Kemi, we've got a little bit of a chat going on today about asking Mm -hmm. and about women and asking. Yes. And I'm really looking forward to diving into that. But before we get into that, Mm -hmm. I'd like to go back to young Kemi. Yes. And what young Kemi liked doing as a child. Oh, Young Kemi loved playing with her baby dolls, and um, but then realised that none of her friends were still playing with their baby dolls. So young Kemi kind of hid her baby doll and thought, oh, I should probably do what everyone else does. Um, I was very creative as a child. I, you know, as an entrepreneur now, I look back and remember that I would make little fabric bows with safety pins on the back that I would sell for like one pound or something to friends at school. And I, you know, we sort of forget that actually we have these entrepreneurial things from a very early age. Loved riding my bike, having secret gangs. I was a scrumper as well, which is scrumping is another word for stealing other people's fruit. Um, so I grew up in Kent, and that's known as English Country Garden, England's Country Garden. And so I would get up on my sister's shoulders, or she'd get up on mine, and we had friends, and we'd just kind of steal people's pears and then run off into the bushes and eat them. And that was like the highlight of the day. That kind of old school fun and play, and were told to come back when the streetlights were on. So yeah, I just loved being outdoors and making things, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so that's something that you've actually brought into your adult life? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I definitely consider myself to be a creative and a maker as well as lots of other things. Still a yeah. scrumper? Still a scrumper, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness, I actually still am. Yeah, but 42, I still steal people's fruit. Um, I have my own beautiful, you know, veggie garden and fruit garden, but I do have surrounding neighbours and we all give each other licence to steal each other's fruit. And there's the unwritten law around fruit. If it's over someone's fence and wall, then you can take it, but you'd never go over someone's boundary. So um, I have more boundaries to my scrumping these days. <laughs> With a bit more permission. Yeah, kind of a bit more, bit more asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A bit more asking. Yeah, very good. Right. Kimmy, you've had a bit of an unusual childhood, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just giving us a bit of a background as to how you grew up. Yeah, okay. So... Um, no one can see this on the podcast, but I have Nigerian heritage, um, but English born. And in the seventies, when I was born, if you were a well-to-do middle-class family, which my parents were, it meant that one of your options that your children went to England to be educated. And it all comes from colonisation, and that's a whole other podcast. But you know, they really believed, okay, if my children are going to be anything, if they're going to be the lawyers and the doctors of Nigeria. We'll send them to England to be educated, and they'll come back. 
and it didn't really work out that way for a lot of families. Um, what actually ended up happening because it was actually kind of it, it wasn't it, it wasn't under any sort of government system the fostering it was basically my mum knew someone that knew someone that knew someone and what ended up happening was a lot of Nigerian ended up getting lost and um, my sister and I were very very lucky and the elders of seven but we were all we were all fostered in pairs um, so by the time my brother came along we kind of were too old to be fostered but so I grew up with my my sister was three years younger than me and we had five different foster families growing up we were separated at foster parents number four because we got home one day from school and there was an eviction notice on the door and my foster mother had disappeared and we didn't know where she was so we sat on a friend's floor that night we went back to school and my headmistress then kind of looked after us and then we went into care so it was now official and I was asked um you know what do you want to happen to you and I just said at that point I don't want to live with my birth mother because I didn't know her at all we spent holidays with her but I didn't know her and I didn't want to go and live in Nigeria because I didn't know Nigeria and so um at that point then they said to me we've actually found a foster family for your sister but not for you or you can go into a children's home together so you can either separate or go into a children's home and I just said, well, obviously we're going to a children's home together. There's no way that we're going to be separated. And we had an interview with the guy that owned the foster home. And he actually said, considering your circumstances, we'd been homeless for six months this t- by this time. So we weren't on the streets, but we, were, we had no fixed abode. We were just on friends' floors rotating around. And he just said, if you come into this children's home, you'll be on drugs or pregnant within a year. So I'm actually not going to take you. And I really consider him to be probably one of the biggest angels that ever graced my life. And so my sister and I were split up and that was very emotionally challenging and it did get bad enough for me that I did try and take my life at that time. I was 14 because I didn't know what life would be like without her. And um, and then I arrived with Sue and Russell who, you know, I was 13 years old. I, I had two plastic bags of belongings and I went out the next day with Sue to get some underwear and various things that I needed and I had an experience where she was asking me what it was I wanted, what sort of underwear I wanted and in that moment I realised that she was asking me to choose and and I look back on that moment and it's a real anchor point for me because I feel like that was the moment when I felt like I was actually asked to choose what I wanted for my life. I mean it was only knickers but you know it, it was really symbolic to me and I remember thinking wow if this is what choice feels like then this is what I've got forever. And, you know, I really know now, looking at the work that I do now as a life coach, is that experiencing having a disempowered childhood and, you know, really creating a life for myself where I feel like an incredibly empowered woman um, and then being able to create that space for other women. I think, you know, for those of us that are privileged, and when I say privileged, I mean every time we go to the cupboard, we have food, we have a roof over our head, you know, that we're actually safe, considering, you know, a lot of women in the world, um, that... Even though we have incredible liberation, we don't necessarily feel empowered. And I think there are very big forces at work to have women not feel empowered. And I think there's reasons for that. And some are, you know, some are obvious and some are not so obvious. So for me to be able to work with one woman at a time or a few women at a time to say, no, do you know what? Actually, the thing you've always got is choice. Um, and, and yeah, so that's how my childhood has really linked into the work that I do that I do now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, incredibly so. And yeah. you know, through every kind of trial, yep. there's a triumph to be seen yeah. at. But at fourteen to be faced with such, you know, an, an incredibly hard situation to be put in. Yeah, but you know what's really interesting is that when you're in it and I've heard other people say they sort of kind of had, you know, kind of had, you know interesting childhood or challenging childhoods or is that you kind of 
you know, I definitely spent my childhood in emotional survival mode. There was no doubt about it. I didn't dream about what I was going to do when I grew up. I didn't dream about my wedding dress. I didn't. I was just like, I hope I have the same mum and dad tomorrow. You know, and that was the con. And I hope I can be good enough. I hope I can be good enough that I won't be passed out on again you know um and also for me as well being a black child raised in a white family in white england had there are other complexities around that as well um which also speaks a little bit to the to asking um and so you know i think we can always choose it's interesting sometimes my clients say to me and you know i want to get the lesson i want to get the lesson you know what's the lesson in this and I, sometimes i have to remind them we have to feel it first the lesson doesn't have to come while we're in it it's a disservice to try and, oh, well, we'll just put the icing over the top and it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what the lesson is. And actually, we don't know what the lesson is until sometimes years, decades later. Um, and so I choose that, you know, and I, but I think we choose our lessons. There's not like one lesson. I think we get to choose what is the most empowering lesson that can move us forward at that time. And so, you know, I have chosen that one of the gifts of being fostered, there's a few. One was I didn't have one particular family telling me who or what I should be. So I didn't have this kind of burden of I will only be loved if, you know. Um, it also meant I didn't have anyone really rooting for me or batting for me, though. And the other thing is that I know what it's like to be in some, literally to be in somebody else's world, to step into somebody else's space where you're, you're a complete outsider and to be able to observe it to see how it works. And as a coach, because my job is to create a space where no one feels judged and there's no agenda, I definitely feel that having that childhood has really benefited me in being able to create that space for others. And knowing just absolutely how imperative that is yeah. to for people to be able to show up in the world yeah. fully. I mean, it's amazing to me when we've had this conversation in the past mm. to think, how did you actually survive that and be able, you know, I've, I've heard of post-traumatic stress disorder yes, yes. and now there's the post-traumatic stress, uh, post-traumatic thriving, um, you know, that oh, kind of like right. flipping, yeah, flipping the lid out there, like in, in times of great hardship, some people will carry mm. the trauma with them for their whole life yeah. and some people will use it to thrive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely put you in that. Sense. <laughs> in the thriving, and yeah, because I, I, you know, I just think I don't have long, you know. And look, and there were. It's funny you should mention post traumatic stress, and I wouldn't necessarily name it that, but there were things that, that happened to me. You know, so when I was a young teenager, and my friends would go on holiday. When I was a young teenager, and my friends would go on holiday, I would sob in my room for days and days because I thought I might never see them again. When I arrived my last foster family, I sort of had a self-harming thing where I'd bang my head against the wall constantly, constantly. And it was kind of like I needed people to know how much pain I needed to kind of demonstrate the pain that I was in. And I would test, which is very, very common for foster children, is to test your foster parents to see, you know, do you want me, do you want me, do you want me, do you want me? Um, you know, so there were definitely, you know, lots of things that I took on in that survival. And... I've, yeah. heard, I've heard that saying before that people need their pain recognised. Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise they stay in the pain yeah. and, it's, yeah. and it's that hurt people hurt people yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like until someone recognises yes. what I'm going through and acknowledges me and what it's going through, yeah. it will persist. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's interesting, I think Brene Brown does a beautiful, where she talks about empathy and this idea for a lot of us, if someone comes to us with their pain, and my observation is that a lot of people can't be with other people's pain because they're not willing to be with their own. And we just can't meet it. If we, and so what we do is we go, oh, no, it'll be okay. 
it'll be okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Diminish it. Do, yeah, yeah. That's uh, or or well, just do this and just do that and just do that. And then it'll Advice. Be fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. Advice. Mm-hmm. The other thing as well, I speak about when I run retreats. Although you know the hug, and it's really interesting because when we hug someone, we think that we're and you know, sometimes hug, you know, hugs are great. I love a hug. Who doesn't love a hug? But if someone is in something emotional, sometimes hugging them actually shuts them down. And I think, once again, it goes to asking. We can always ask, would you like a hug right now? It's amazing how many times people say no. Because mm-hmm. they want to be able to feel it. You know, like just knowing that you're there. They just need to know you're there, but they don't need you to kind of envelop them so then they can't have the experience that they need to have at that time. And you're right, it will keep coming back. If we don't, if we don't feel heard it will keep coming back. And, and the more it has to keep coming back, the uglier it gets. Yeah, and so there's there's two things that you've just said there that remind me of in, in a work environment when we show up as someone in pain mm. and people not knowing how to respond mm. to us mm. and us kind of just freaking out yeah. because we're not knowing how to do with us. Yes. But also as leaders, doing the importance of us doing our own work so that we can sit with somebody who is in pain yes. and not shy away from it and not try and diminish it and yeah. not try to fix it, yeah. but just be with them in that yeah. moment so yeah. that they can they can be seen. That's it's right. just it's powerful. And that, that second point about asking mm. people, can I would you like a hug? Yeah. As opposed to just assuming that or and in in, my, in the Brene training that I did, that was something that we were encouraged to to identify in ourselves is how do I like to be comforted Mm. Um, Mm. and for me I'm a big hugger so I'm yeah but but maybe after I've kind of been an emotional mess yes first yes so we we absolutely do have preferences for how we prefer to be comforted because it might just be someone holding your hand or rubbing your back or just making your cup of tea sitting next to you that's right and that's like the whole love languages idea in the same Mm. way that we all like to be loved in different ways Mm. you know and and instead of guessing trying to guess our partners or spouses or children's way to be loved that we can actually ask them what does love look like to you right now yes yes oh it doesn't mean me you know as a mother it doesn't mean me putting you to bed every single night it actually means me sewing a button on your shorts yes do you know what I mean yes. it's like oh okay that kind of frees yes, up some time service. yeah that's, that's, right. that's, my, that's, that's mine that's mine <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of mothers love language is acts of service yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and bringing that back to a work context I mm. actually found out about that you know I was rec- recording an interview with an, on- an online entrepreneur and he said we actually have done our love languages in our office oh great and so I actually know that the HR guy yeah he wants to be hugged. That's yeah, when he yeah. wants, you know, for, uh, to Physical show appreciation. Yeah. He, he's a hugger. Whereas, yeah. you know, John in accounts, <laughs> he likes me to stand up in front of the whole company and give him praise. Yeah. You know, but, and so they actually did that within right. their team, which yeah. was, I thought that's phenomenal. I think any, any tools work that allow us as human beings to be able to honestly and authentically connect with each other is always going to be a good thing. I think it's, I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to use the word ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous to have, example, a work environment and you have people come in with all of their stuff from zero to whatever age they are and you literally just throw everyone into a situation and go, okay, get on with it and not expect for people's stuff to come up and to not inquire and to not have those uncomfortable conversations with people and to not... um, I listened to something the other day 
an American woman who was talking about having that uncomfortable conversation at work and, and that she felt that as a CEO, it was her job to have the uncomfortable conversation because how could her employees grow if they didn't know they were doing bad work? Mm-hmm. Um, and she'd experienced it before where she was trying to be a nice CEO and hadn't, hadn't said, had a conversation, ended up sacking the person and, and then it just haunted because when she, you know, when she said to him, you know, you're fired, he said, but I thought you liked me. I thought because what she'd done, instead of having the uncomfortable conversation, she decided to be nice instead. Mm. And she said, and that, let, that really taught me the lesson that I had done him a disservice because I didn't give him the opportunity to actually become better. Mm. I waited until it got really, really bad and then I could fire him. Mm. So, you know, I just think, it, you know, there's so much opportunity whenever you have human beings in a space for us to be human with each other. Mm. Yeah, and yet we're not taught how to have no, those cons- hard conversations. No, no. And we do get, we do rock up in an office, as you said. We're all thrown in together with all of our baggage of lived yeah. experience, yeah. all of our, you know, how we've grown up. And yeah, survival it, techniques, all the, the stories modeling. we've told ourselves, the modelling, the, you know, we Unresolved the power things. struggles, you yes. know, all of this stuff. And then it's like, okay, great, let's look at our bottom line. Yes, Yes. Like, yeah, but I'm surviving, you know, or whatever yes. it is, you know. Yes. Yeah. You know, my dad's dying right now, so I'm not really don't really care about the bottom line or you know, how do you how can you you know, how can you bring the human into those into that space? Well this is what this podcast is about and mm. why I'm talking to people mm. like you because you do coach uh, women. Yes. In all areas of their life, you're yeah. a life coach, yeah. but life doesn't begin and end. No. You know, there are there's no boundary between life and work. Yes. You know, it is part of who we are and, and gives meaning to our life. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you was, what, given where you are now in your life and the work that you do, the th- one of the questions that I ask people often is, I'd love to know some of the things that you believe in, like so, sort of three beliefs that are that drive who you are today, given your lived experience. Okay. Um, I believe that I am responsible for my life, 100%. Um, so if I don't believe that anything is happening to me, I don't take on being a victim of anything. So, yeah, so I would just say that I am responsible. If I want my marriage to work, it's up to me. If I want my children to something, it's up to me. Um, I believe in empowerment over help. When we empower the other, they get to use their resources. They get to tap into who they really are. When we help, we normally have an emotional attachment to how it's going to turn out. And I used to be a helper, so I know the difference um, and what else do I believe? Oh, I believe in the power of nature, being in it, smelling it, for and, and for for emotional well being, for creativity, for time out, and just for awe, just to be in awe, to just you know to be able to look at a bee on a piece of lavender and just go, how does that work? That that honey's going to come soon, you know? I believe, yeah, I believe in the power of nature. Mm, and you're out in it often when you look at your instagram feed you're (laughs) out in the world i am running ultra marathons (laughs) through the hills and And it's really interesting i had somebody say to me a fantastic friend and colleague say to me the other day you know kimmy you're a real yes person and it really shocked me because i actually consider myself to be a no person so that i can say yes to the things that are important um and you know i you know i was an actor i loved acting i love it when i'm speaking i love being on stage but i have very strong introvert tendencies so you know I could be part of a running group but I I did it I tried it once and two minutes into it I was just like 
I really hope this person's going to stop talking to me soon and thought, no, running is a solo thing. And I have running friends I now run with on training runs, but after a while I just say to them, ladies, I'm off. Because I just need, you know, I just need to, I just need to kind of commune with the trees. Um, and my work as well, I um, work on my own. You know, I have my assistant that comes in once a week, but otherwise I'm actually on my own and I really, really like that. Then I'm really charged for when the family come home at the end of the day. And, you know, I'm very, very mindful of how I fill my cup so that I can be of service to other people. And in being of service to other mm-hmm. people, you are a coach. Mm-hmm. So... Could you talk a little bit about your work that you do as a coach and yep. how you arrived at this being a thing for you? Okay, so it, I suppose it arrived. I actually first, and facilitation and coaching is different, but I look back on it like I was talking about, you know, entrepreneurial things. I look back and I first started facilitating when I was 14. So when I arrived with my last set of foster parents, they actually ran a drama workshop and I started doing drama workshops with children. Um and one of the reasons why I'm coaching now is because I was, you know, I was doing the whole raw food thing and I loved it. And I would spend a day with a group of women sharing with them raw food and how it's great to add this life to your life and the difference it has, the clarity and energy. And I would a very, food a life, your, yeah, add a life, life to your life. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, and I would say to them, this isn't about diets. I'm not a fan of diets. I think, you know, I think they're one of the best ways of disempowering women but I would still have women come up to me with some version at the end of, okay, I really got all that, but does, does celery or cucumber have more calories? And the more I kept hearing that again and again, I just thought, this is, this is massive. And it started to make me feel incredibly angry and upset that I was also surrounded by women in my life that were successful in so many ways, whether that's successful in their career path or successful as mothers or successful in their communities. It was all about the last five kilos or any version of that or the wrinkles or the, and I just thought we don't have long here on this planet. And if our, if we want our epitaph to say, you know, she made it to a size two, that's going to be really disappointing. And so I started coaching women, um, in just, you know, what was happening. And kind of sometimes I think the universe just says to you, this is the thing. And then I decided to become credentialed two years ago. And the reason I became credentialed, quite a few reasons. One, there are a lot of coaches in the space. And I do think that a lot of people can contribute to others in lots of ways. But I really wanted for myself to become the best coach that I could be, a credentialing body that was behind me, that was kind of keeping an eye on me and the work that I do, and that I have a very strong base of ethics and guidelines that I follow. So I might have a client that will come to me and we'll have our first, well, they won't be a client yet, but they'll have like a first session. Just We're just checking each other out. Can I be of service to you? What support do you need? And if I need to, I will say to them, I don't think either one that I'm the coach for you or... I don't think it's coaching that you're after. I think that maybe what you need at the moment is a counsellor or something else. I wouldn't have been able to have done that seven years ago when I first started coaching because I didn't have those very clear boundaries about what that is. Um, My job as a coach and the way that I explain it to people is that I work with a woman wherever she is. She will share with me what her goal is over here. And then I work, we work together in the gap. And so that can be anything. So my day, I had an incredible day yesterday with my clients. I had a full day of clients and I went from um, someone who's about to go overseas and is trying to, is, was in complete overwhelm of how do you pack up your life in a month to go, you know, to live in another country to someone who is starting a brand new business from scratch, has just left, you know, just left her career for a certain amount of time to someone else whose um, parent is, is currently dying and how to deal with those family dynamics within that space. And then somebody else who needed to, to find out what tiles it was she wanted for the bathroom started at the bathroom tiles 
And she kind of came in saying, I can't believe this is what I'm talking about. And for me to just validate and say, this is what is happening for you right now in your life. You know, I think that middle class guilt is a really good way of us not doing anything either. What ended up happening around the bathroom tiles is what she got was that she struggled with making decisions because she's scared of failing and getting it wrong. So one thing I love about the coaching process is that you start somewhere and you have no idea where it's going to end up. No idea at all. Ask questions for which you don't have answers. Yes, absolutely. And not supposed to have the answers. You know, it's not my job as a coach to give advice. That's what a consultant does. It's not my job as a coach to take people way, way, way back into the path and stay there. That's what counselling and all of those great other healing modalities are for. Um, And sometimes we need to go into the past as coaches, but only in service of the future. We don't hang out there for too long. It's good to know. Um, And I get to create the space where people can fail and be vulnerable. And also with women, what's interesting to sometimes say, how are you going to celebrate that achievement? It's like, what do you mean? Why would I, you know, why would I celebrate that? Especially entrepreneurs. Um, But also to say, own that you are, that you've mastered that. You know, I invite you to own that actually you are really organized at work and that was why you got that promotion. You know, it wasn't luck. It wasn't just because Sally was sick that day. It wasn't. It's because you put in the hard yards, you were recognized and this is the prize. Um, So, and it's great to be able to have that space and to go on that journey. It's very intimate. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, uh, I mean, you work exclusively with women. I do. Because of... Because we're awesome. (laughs) Because I feel as a woman, I have that lived experience. You know, I have had people say to me, oh, I think you should work with men. I wouldn't, I wouldn't not ever work with men. It's not about that. Men are great. I'm married to one. I have a son. But if I met a man and he wanted me to be his coach and we gelled and we connected and I felt that I could be of service to him, then I probably would take on that guy as a client. But the reason that I love working with women is because I believe that we are all in it together. And even though we're coming from different backgrounds, different experiences, there's something about womanhood that is a shared experience for all of us. Things like when we get to a certain age, our hormones are going to make a difference to whether or not we want to make dinner that night. Um, what, you know, we need to, for, for women that are incredibly successful and ambitious, we can do it, and I believe that we should, and I'm incredibly ambitious as well, but not at the expense of ourselves. And that was the old male model. You know, men can succeed really well focusing on one thing, but and it annoys me, it annoys me, but actually I'm not going to have a good day at work if my husband and I aren't getting on very well. And I'm not going to have a good day at work if I know that my daughter's a bit stressed about something. Or So for me, it's how do I look at what's important and then how do I focus on those things and have some level of harmony, you know, from hour to hour. Let's not look at it as life balance or, you know, what, look, what does balance look like today? Today. What does balance look like today? Just today. Sometimes, what does balance look like this hour? You know, if you're really in overwhelm, okay, in this hour, balance looks like not having toast. Balance looks like, you know, having a piece of fruit right now. You know, it's like, what does that look like? Or balance is right now having the toast with the chocolate spread and the peanut butter and the cup of tea, because that is actually what I need right now to have everything else work in the day. You know, this is not the area to beat myself up because I, there's other stuff I need to be doing today. So, um, and I do, I, you know, it's where I see my childhood as a privilege because I know what it's like to not own your life. So I, my experience of how I live my life now, it's like a game. It's, it's, it's not always fun, but it is a gift and a privilege to be able to direct the course of how your life goes mm-hmm. to the point that you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the, yeah. The, coming back to the, the choice you have. So you might not choose the circumstances no. in which you find yourself, no. but you certainly have a choice about yeah. how you... How you can react. How you can react. And also how... Even, you know, I love that quote, which, which kind of is that. But also I think, and this is about the difficult conversations, we think that, oh, I get to choose how I react and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go the higher ground right now. You might think you are, but when you're in it, you actually don't. And then to be able to say in that, you know, difficult conversation... That is so not what I meant to say. Can I just start again? Brilliant. You know, and to just have that space to then go, okay, what I meant to say. To start conversations off where you can actually say, I know that sometimes when I speak to you, you feel manipulated. And I know that sometimes when I speak to you, you think that I'm patronising. I do not want any of those things to show up in this conversation right now. So let me know if you're starting to feel that way and I'm going to start again. And that can only come from self-awareness. When you know, okay, my survival technique is that, and if I'm feeling threatened or I'm feeling vulnerable, I'm going to pull that out of the bag, we can kind of give the person we're talking to a pre-warning. This is what I do. This is what it looks like. Let me know if I'm doing that because what I'm committed to is that you and I are connected through whatever it is that's happening. Mm. There's a great technique in some of the training that I've done, which is about circling back. Right. You know, it's that idea of maybe you've had a conversation and maybe in the moment you haven't realised what how you've landed on mm, someone mm. until you've had a chance to step back from it yes and it's and giving yourself the grace to yeah. to circle back and yeah. say you know that conversation that we had yesterday I realized that I said this and yeah. I thought about it and it's actually not what I really meant. meant this is what I meant and I just wanted to check in with you yeah. because this was actually my intention mm. and I'm what what where, where were you at in that yeah. conversation when we had that yeah and so having that language to even say it's okay to circle back yeah. and that a relationship is a series of dialogues it's not a one-time no. go at it yeah you know and it's an ongoing and, and fumbling and messy and all of those things I think our need to um get it right the first time is we just don't do ourselves or anyone else any service yes and I in, in your work with women in particular, I remember hearing, uh, I think it was the lady who started um, Girl, Girls Who Code, and she she started it because she could see that when when she was trying to do something as a, as a girl, mm. the idea of perfecting it first time around mm. was what crippled women in particular yes. from then pursuing you know, the next stage yes, of it, they drop yes. out of it. Whereas boys are taught to be brave. Yeah. So girls are taught to be perfect. Yes. Girls are taught to be brave. Yes, yes. And also perfect and not rocking the boat in any way. Compliant. Yeah. Be compliant and be available all the time. You are a good girl if you are constantly available and you don't rock the boat and you're, you're perfect. Mm. That's, that's, that's heavy. That's like a burden. <laughs> that is a burden that so many women are having. You know, we're living with that every single day all the time and I speak about that a little bit you know the curse of the good girl and I mentioned it in my first book but I've gone into it deeper in the gift of asking because I believe it is the curse of the good girl that has us not asked you know for me from my you know lived experience you know especially to be a black child in a white world you know you just be very grateful for what you've got was based you know and I even what I remember it being said to me enough times that it kind of stuck people say to me you know, you're one of the black ones, but you're a nice one, or you're one of the black ones, but you're a good one, or variations of, you know, you should be grateful for what you've got, which basically meant because you're being brought up by white people and you don't have to live in Africa, you know. So it's, you know, so I one of the things for me writing this book was to really look at what my asking journey has been and the impact it's had on me of just kind of like just be good and just be quiet and don't rock the boat. 
Um, and look, and it still rears its head sometimes as a 42-year-old woman because sometimes I, living in Australia, living in Melbourne as well, it would be, maybe be different if I was, you know, in Alice Springs or something, but where I'm in Melbourne is that generally I am the only person of colour in the room, in the rooms that I, you know, circle in. And so when there are certain issues that come up or are not pointed out, I am I know that I am the one that has to call it because no one else is going to. And sometimes I still have that feeling like, oh, you know, you don't want to be the aggressive black woman or the, the angry black woman. It's what Michelle Obama, you know, Obama speaks about this idea of if you're a black woman and you have an opinion, then you're immediately angry. So therefore we don't speak, you know, which actually then forms another form of anger because we don't have a voice, you know. Oppression. Yeah, oh, that's oppression. right. Exactly. <laughs> on top of oppression, on top of oppression. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not that, you know, within the book, it's not that we go from never asking for anything to then asking for everything that we've ever wanted, but that we all have a history around asking. We all learned something. I interviewed nine women that all that live in, some of them live in Australia, but they've come from different countries. And it was so interesting to ask them the question of what did you learn about asking as a child? And for them to tap into that and to see, you know, that for some you just didn't, you just didn't ask because it rocked the boat and that sort of thing. But for some asking was weak and you had to be self-sufficient. Um, and, you know, hearing other people spoke about, I cannot believe they asked for that, you know, how greedy, you know, so that, and greedy was bad, so therefore they would never ask. And how that manifested in their relationships as young women, how that's manifested at work, knowing that your male colleague is getting paid so much more than you, and they're not good at their job, and you are, but not being able to ask because you don't want to rock the boat. And the impact that has on all it's not about the money, you know, for me, writing this book, I really have discovered in speaking to women is that asking is equated with self-worth and worthiness. It's not that we ask so that we can have everything that we want. Sometimes it's good that we don't get what we want. There's another opportunity waiting. But the idea that we are worthy enough to ask is the message that I am really hoping that women get from reading this book and that we can ask for anything. And for some women asking I had a friend I took to Bali a few years ago and she said to me like a, a month later we were chatting, she goes, when we're in that cafe and that waiter asked you and you said, oh, I'd like the avocado but I don't want the egg but could I have that instead of that? She said, I'm just looking at you thinking, she asks for anything. I would never ask for that. And for some of us, if we're paying for a service and I like good service, having been in hospitality, I appreciate incredible customer service and I'm running my own business the same if I'm paying for something, I have no problem in asking. I have no problem in asking. But there are many women that would never, even if they don't even like the avocado, they just won't ask to either not have the avocado or to change the avocado for something else. And that all comes into, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to appear greedy. I don't want to make a fuss. And it's like, but you're paying. It's your meal. And then there are other asking, like asking for a hug, asking for more time, asking for sex, asking not to have sex. One of the things that really shocked me in my research of this book was I was presenting in front of 150 women and I asked them, who here? And it wasn't a question that I knew I was going to ask. I was just, just the space that I was in and, and the, the energy that I was getting. And I said, who here has only had sex when they have wanted to? And of the 150 women in that room, three of us put our hand up. Mm. And, you know, I wasn't speaking in the realm then of, you know, of abuse or rape or anything of that. And I know that if I'd asked that question as well, because I've worked with women enough to know that there would have been a lot of hands that would have gone up if I'd asked that question as well. But, you know, just in that kind of in, within your relationships and who, you know, and who was unable to ask for something else like chocolate or a hug instead. Um, and I talk in the book about a woman that I met that said to me, 
the reason I date men is so that I can have a hug, so I can have that physical intimacy, and the only way to do that is to have sex with them. And I would never ask for a hug. That would be weird. So it's interesting even what we will do to not actually ask what it is that we want. So what's the alternative? How do we get over ourselves and in in a self-compassionate way yeah. rather than a beat ourselves up yeah. because I'm not a good asker? Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, there's no beating up. There's no, there's no time for beating ourselves <laughs> up. There are so many other people and things that are trying to beat us up all the time. Um, I... You know, one of the things, there are five asking processes within the book, and the first one to look at our asking, because we don't ask ourselves these questions. So to be asked the question, what is your relationship to asking? It just has little light bulbs just go off. And then within the book, we just sit with that for a little while. There's nothing to do. You don't have to ask anyone anything. You just sit with what is my relationship to asking. We then go out into the world, and you just see it. We just start to clock. And one way that I say to, to understanding when you know when you're not asking for something is to look at, what are you constantly complaining about? What are you tolerating? What are you gossiping about? What do you feel resentful about? Where do you feel like your ship hasn't come in again or that you've missed the boat? All of these, what I call the costs, are all really great inroads to look at and what am I not asking for? And so it's not a book where it's kind of like, bam, 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 you have to do this and then ask and then ask. And then ask. It's like, first of all, just sit in, what is your relationship to asking? And then looking at, and, and what have been, what's been the biggest ask that you've ever had in your life? And how did that turn out? And what did you learn from that, whether you got it or whether you didn't get it? So it's just that, you know, my work is all about being gentle because I, I believe very much in action, but we need to be gentle with ourselves because this idea that women are broken and we need to be fixed, I'm kind of over it. <laughs> you know, I'm over it. There's nothing to fix. We're not broken. And so if we're not broken, but we, can, we want to thrive in our lives then there are lots and lots of tools and lots of avenues for us to do that as individuals in a way that doesn't make us feel like we're doing something wrong. Mm. Yeah. So is it like a muscle? Yeah, it is. It's a muscle and you start asking when you feel ready to ask. Sometimes you have to ask when you're not ready, you know, and we all can work out and that's, the, you know, that beautiful superpower of ours, intuition. It's kind of like I'm really scared to ask this but I know I have to. You know, you may not be ready, you may not feel comfortable, but you actually know, okay, I need to ask. And yeah. So one of the things I'm fascinated in the work that I do is the moment of choosing to do that. Mm. Like the very second mm. we flick out of that, I can't, I can't, I can't. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do it. Yeah. What do you think that is? What do you think happens inside of us that just goes, you know, it's kind of like the bungee jump, mm. you know, standing mm. on the edge. Yeah. Like, you know, there's Why no... anyone would do that, I don't know. <laughs> For some people, it's just as scary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is like that. And I think for different people at different times, it'll be a different thing. I think that whole idea of what motivates you, pleasure or pain, is the situation you're in painful enough now that you have to do it? Or are you so motivated by the pleasure that's going to come on the other side of it that that's the thing that has to ask you? Unfortunately, I think a lot of people wait until it's pain. You know, like, actually, it's so painful now that I have to do something. And when we look back, there were so many opportunities where we could have. But within that, we weren't meant to for whatever reasons. And then when we, when we do ask, that's the time that we're meant to ask because that's the time that we're asking. One thing that I'm really committed to is that people understand the difference between an insight and taking action. You know, we can sit in this space of, I know this about myself and I'm very self-aware and I know this and I know this. And, oh, and I went to that course and I realised this about myself and I realised this and I realised this. And then my question is, okay, so what are you going to do about it? You know, I think that's why a lot of people find themselves on kind of the self-help, 
you know, merry-go-round. And actually, it's interesting because some people will put coaching within self-help and some people will say it's, it's, inc- it's very different than self-help. It's definitely self, um, you know, it's like self-development and development as in that it's moving you forward. I think it's possible for people to just go from self-help course to self-help and never actually, we all have those people, we either know them or we know of them that go to every single course that there is, but you kind of feel like, kind of still in the same place you were 10 years ago because what we know is that constant insight after insight doesn't shift anything. It's taking action that shifts things. And building that muscle. Yeah, and building that muscle and failing and not getting it right and and then being really scared and trying it again and then going, I'm not going to do that again and then doing it again and then you realise two years, three years, four years, five years, five years down the line, I cannot believe where I am now compared to where I was as opposed to, but it was a seven-day course where it's supposed to fix me and I don't feel any different. It's like, yeah, no, because the reality is it takes work. So what happens when you get a no? Oh, the no's can be gold. So there are, and I speak about this, but there's actually a chapter called when, you know, when you, the answer is a no. There's counter offers. Counter offers are one of my favourite. You know, so there's all these different options. The counter offer is, okay, let, let's just talk about, because, you know, the work environment, just say it's about money for the raise. So the counter office, okay, I understand that that's not going to happen now for whatever reason you've been told. It's a no. Um, Would you be willing to look at this again in three months? Um, What is it that I would need to do to be considered to have that raise? Keep asking questions so you have the information to choose. And it may be that what you're told that you need to do to get that raise, you're not up for doing. And that's when you get to choose. You know that when we ask these difficult questions and the answer is no, I had a client where just come out of a relationship and she didn't know whether it was on or off or on and off. And, you know, we sort of worked through it and she decided that the action she was going to take was to say to her partner, is this a no for now or no forever? Like a really difficult question to ask. And she asked and the answer was it was a no forever. And although she had to grieve and she felt rejected and all those things, she now had a choice because she now she could move on. So now it's okay. So now I actually have my personal power back because I know what the situation is and now I get to choose what it is that I get to do from here. And I know where I stand. And I know where I stand. And the thing is, though, as uncomfortable as it is, many of us in many situations would rather be in limbo. You know, we know we need the answer. Hiding. We're just, yeah, just like, even though I don't know if we're together or not, this is kind of better than him telling me that we're not together, even though I know we're not together, but I just can't ask whether we're together or not because she might suffer. You know, it's we're just... There's something, there's comfort in the not knowing, even though it's costing us in lots of different ways. Until it becomes... Until it becomes unbearable. Or you see the person off with somebody else and then you know the answer, which doesn't necessarily give you personal power because you didn't, you didn't actually elicit it from yourself. Like, I need to know this for myself as a human being that's worthy of knowing whether or not you just don't love me for now and we need to work through things or you just don't love me anymore. You know... And we're all, all going to be told at some point that someone doesn't love us anymore. That's part of the human experience. Or that we're not needed anymore. Or that we're not needed anymore. Or we're anymore. not wanted anymore yeah, at work. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. as we go through our careers, there are situations where career relationships yeah. end or break yeah. up or morph. Absolutely. Or, you know, Absolutely. Or, and so it's, you know, our sort of fear of hearing the no, we think that no is the negative and no is actually what can give us personal power. Mm. It's like, okay, so I've got the no now, what do I, now what do I choose to do with that? Yes. You know? Um, Another way as well when you get the no is to, um, like I said, check in to say, well, you know, what are your concerns about giving me a yes? Great question. You know, what are your concerns about giving me a yes? Because the reason people say no is because they have a concern, something, somewhere, and it may be because you haven't been at the company long enough. 
and we don't feel that you have the, okay, so what would it take for me? What would it take for you to know that I have what I need to whatever, to take on that project? Um, you know, there are many different ways of navigating, many different ways of navigating a no. What if you're on the other side of being asked? Yeah, as a woman. <laughs> Another whole chapter dedicated to this, which actually starts with, I couldn't write a book about asking without a chapter saying, we must be able to say no. So, um, you know, checking it, a really small, very practical tool within the book. You know, so I'm a coach writing the book, but I'm not a coach in the book, which means that I do give, you know, kind of tips and ideas, which isn't really within the realms of what I do necessarily for my clients, unless I ask permission for them to give them advice. Um, but one of them is just not saying yes in that moment when you're asked. Like, this is a really simple one. To just say, I will get back to you tomorrow, on Thursday, on Sunday, in a week, space. Mm-hmm. So you can actually check in. Do I want to do this? If I am doing it, why am I doing this? How long will this take me to do? What will be the impact on me, my family, my work, my other commitments if I take on this thing? Um, So this kind of gives you time. And another one is suggesting someone that really would want to do that. So not in a kind of, I'll just get myself out of it and I'll suggest Barbara, you know, but actually knowing that Barbara is looking for work or Barbara is something and that is something she'd be really great at and, you know, and just checking in with Barbara. Someone's asked me to do something. I can't do it. Would you be interested? Can I connect the two of you? Um, and, and then there's just saying no and then just not saying anything else afterwards. You know? It's a complete sentence. Yes, it's a complete sentence. No is a complete sentence. I love that. Yeah, no. And what does make a lot of women feel better is, I'm sorry I can't do that for you. Thank you very much for asking me, but I'm a no. You know, so you kind of... Elegant. Yeah, elegant. So there's no... Any guilt that you then have after that is your stuff from whatever, but there's nothing in that sentence in saying that that makes you a horrible person or nasty or selfish or any of those things. That voice that starts doing that... You know, that's for, that's for you to work with in another realm. But in that space of thank you, I'm so honoured that you would, that you would ask me to do that. I'm committed to other things at the moment. I want to really commit my time to what I'm already responsible for um, and I'm a no at this point. So when you talk about that voice that shows up, mm. that inner critic mm. voice, like you can't say no. What yeah. if they don't ask you again? What if you miss yeah. out? What yeah. if that's led to yeah. something else and yeah. you've disappointed them and, you yeah. know, what yeah. if they hate your guts now? Yeah. What if they talk yeah. behind your back? No, yeah. you know, the whole yeah. like yeah. soundtrack yeah. of yeah. that inner critic stuff. Do you help women work through that as a coach? Oh, absolutely. And it's all about me just asking questions. So, you know, one of my favorite, um, I suppose, tools with coaching is kind of where you just drill down. So, so what would happen if that, so what would happen if you found out that they were talking about you? Okay. And then what would happen? And then what would happen? And then, and generally what we get to is nothing. (laughs) Nothing would happen. Yeah. You would just feel uncomfortable. It wouldn't feel nice, but nothing would happen. You know, but what happens, what happens in you saying no is that you actually get to be with your family on the holiday that you have planned without having to take on this extra bit of something because you felt that you wanted to be a good girl. You know, it's also looking at you're saying no because you can see the costs if you say yes. And sometimes we have to say yes, continue to, until it gets so bad that we have no other option but to say no. And that's me. the pain. <clears throat> until it and that's the so pain. Painful. It becomes so painful. And it's not just painful for us, though. We sometimes we underestimate how other people are being affected by us being completely overcommitted. You know, but our children are affected, those of us that have children, our colleagues, our family, the people that we really love, the people that we really want to dedicate our energy and our time to are affected when we are overwhelmed and when we become resentful and when we're angry. 
they get affected too. So one of the things that I've worked through with a couple of my clients mm-hmm. as well is when they get asked a lot at work mm-hmm. to take on more mm-hmm. and more and mm-hmm. more and more. And one of the tools that we have is um, to put down on paper everything that you've got on your plate at the moment yeah. yep. and to to make to actually put it on the table yeah. and say, well, this is everything that is on my plate right yeah. now. Yeah. So you're asking me for something else to put on, on that. Yeah. So what what where do my priorities lie? Yeah. What what Perfect. are my priorities yeah. now? What can I take off? Yes. What can we delay, yeah. defer, deny? Yeah. Have the three Ds. Yes. You know? Yeah. How can we do that? So and put it on paper. So yeah. it's not it's real and yeah. it's not just me figuratively pulling stuff out of the air, air. it's actually on paper and yeah. so I'm not it's between the two of us yes it's not subjectively just sitting just with, with me. me yeah absolutely and I remember actually you know very old school but I do love Brian Tracy and he spoke about you know asking this idea of saying to your if you're if you're a boss or if you're an employee if you're an employee saying to your boss what am I paid for like, what am I paid to do what what are the three things that I'm actually paid to do what do I need to turn out to be the best I can at this My role. My KPIs? Yeah, what, yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of. What, what is it that I am here to do that no one else in this firm is doing? And then for the boss, like, what sort of leader do you need me to be? What sort of boss do you need me to be? This asking thing again. So we're not spending our energy trying to guess what it is that people need for us when actually we can just ask them, what is it you need from me right now? Um, my husband actually last night, he said to me, it's a ritual that we have. He said to me, how am I going as a husband? Actually, he said, how am I going as a husband? How am I going as a father? Yeah, I think it was those two. How am I going as a husband? How am I going as a father? Um, And we get to check in with each other and to say, actually, and and if anyone's interested, I said, actually, you're doing really great on all fronts right now. Oh, and domestic. That was the third one. And how am I doing on domestics? I love that ritual. Oh, it's so good because it means then that we're working towards the things that are important to us because our marriage is really important to us. We believe in working on it. We we took our vows knowing that this is going to be work and we want to consciously work on it and not wait until it's so painful and then think, oh, what happened? And imagine if that if we also did that in our working life, yes, if right. we front-footed it yeah. rather than yeah. just waiting yeah. for the dreaded yeah. performance appraisal. Review. That's right, exactly. It feels like, yeah. a, you know, a, a, for me, I've always yeah. always such a I – don't, I don't have a good time with confrontation and it always right. felt like, yeah. you know, something – I was always a harsher critic on myself than anybody Anyone could, else could, be. could ever possibly yeah, be. Yeah. But I wanted to just touch on one of the topics you mentioned or one of the words you brought up previously was about gratitude, mm. about, you know, you should be grateful <laughs> for yeah, X, Y, Z, yeah. X, 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 Y, Z. And, you know, Jeff, definitely, you know, post-GFC and, you know, us all – the Western world kind of hunkering down during the financial crisis yes. and just going, we don't, we can't control this, so we're just going to work on being grateful for what we have. Yes. But the problem with that then sitting in gratitude and marrying that with ambition for more, mm. the straddling of those two things, being grateful for what you have and, and asking for more. Yeah. And I think this is, and I think this is the, um, there's a difference between, you know, I have a very strong gratitude practice and there's a difference between being grateful for what it is that you have and also being grateful for what's coming. You know, that there, we don't have to have guilt. One thing that I know, all of my foster families until my last one were all working class. The one that was evicted, we actually lived on the worst street in that village. You know, the one where as soon as you mention where you live, everyone just kind of gives you that face. And so I know what it's like to be sort of, you know, the lower end of, you know, the poverty classes, I suppose, and to also be middle, wealthy middle class. 
And poverty, shame and middle class guilt doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. And that's why for me, I'm committed to action again. So as I mentioned earlier, for those that have the privilege of food on our table and a roof over our heads, it is a gift and a privilege and that we can be grateful for, that we can make a difference in having these conversations, you know, whatever it is that some one person listens to this conversation that we're having and thinks, okay, now's my time to ask whatever it is, either for myself, for my community, for my children, for my parents, whatever it is, that that is, that is the thing. If we're not having to worry about our base needs, that we then have the privilege to be able to go out and ask for more for others, for ourselves, in, the, in service of others and the planet. It's the gift that we have. And I think that, you know, this idea that, oh, I just have to be grateful, that, that is a really great way of people not doing anything. Yes. And, that's and being oppressed, people being like, that's how I felt as a child when my one, this particular foster mother, and she did speak like this, literally would say, you just be grateful for what you have. You know, that did not make me grateful. It made me quiet and silent and scared. Yeah. And so for me, the paradox of gratitude is the, is is, is, is actually the, the gratefulness that you find in the moment yeah. and not um, letting that be all there is. Yeah, that's right. And it goes the other way as well where we can though completely forget is that we can strive for something and then we're in it and then it's like we forget that we wanted this thing. Be careful what you ask for. Yeah, be careful what you ask for. You know, we forget that we wanted it so then we're in it and we're complaining and we're moaning and then you look back and you're like, actually, I asked for this. And then there's another level of gratitude. Like, this isn't what I thought it was going to look like. A little bit harder than what I imagined, but thank you. You know, thank you. I wonder who I'm going to be on the other side of this. Mm. And it comes back to that self-awareness and choice piece yeah, again. absolutely. So, Kimmy, I just wanted to wrap up this conversation, which we could go on for hours know, about. it's gone so quickly. Um, what are three things that you would like people to walk away from this conversation that we've had and the work that you're putting out into the world? Um, I definitely feel that the more that we can own that we are responsible for our individual lives, that gives us an incredible freedom of which to move forward and live our lives. Um, It doesn't mean that life gets any... I'm not a big fan of, you know, let's all be happy. I think that would be exhausting. Um, It doesn't mean that life is going to be happier, but it means that you have ownership and that's a gift not to be taken for granted, Um, that as women, we are a whole being and we are allowed to love shopping and want to save the whales and eat ice cream and eat bowls of broccoli and be with our friends, girlfriends, drinking champagne and be on our own in the garden and that we shouldn't have to justify all aspects of ourselves to anyone else and the things that make us thrive, we're allowed to have them let us thrive. Number three, um, number three, what would be number three? Um, oh, to, um, to, no, no, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to put a little caveat on the end. To continually get out of your comfort zone because that is how we expand. That doesn't mean, it, I don't mean that we have to be constantly on the edge with our heart pumping every single moment of every single day, not wanting to get out of bed. It's like, well, you know, like making it a bad thing. Oh, I've got to get out of my comfort zone today. How do I do that? All I mean is sometimes getting out of your comfort zone for some people is smiling at a stranger. You know, that is, and in that moment, in that exchange, you experience yourself as someone that now does smile, that connects with other people for no reason. Um, getting out of comfort zone, yeah, for me, it's running 100 kilometres sometimes. But also getting out of my comfort zone is saying to my husband, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to say that. The hard conversation? Yeah. 
well, just admitting that you're wrong can be tough. You know, that can be out of a comfort zone. Um, sometimes, you know, there are just different ways of getting out of our comfort zone. It's kind of like, what would I normally do in this situation? What if I do something different? You know, like a little game. Just a little game. I think play, that would be my thing, maybe getting out of comfort zone the way that I make it, is play in your life more with yourself and with others. Try something different. So, Kimmy, where can people find out more about you? People can find me at my hard-to-spell name, um, so I'm going to spell it out slowly. So it's Kemi, K-E-M-I, neck the pill, which is N-E-K-V-A-P-I-L.com, kemineckthepill.com. And on there um, I talk about, you know, my, my work as coaching and speaking and the events that I'm speaking at, but also there are free chapters of both of my books that people can download just to kind of get a bit more of an idea of, what I believe and what I'm committed to in the world. So the first book is Raw, raw, is beauty, raw beauty and that's raw Seven beauty. Principles. The Seven Principles to Nourish Your Body, Transform Your Mind and Live the Life That You Want and The Gift of Asking. The new one. The new one is A Woman's Guide to Creating Personal Power. I can't wait till it lands. Thanks, Kemi. No problem. Now we're going to do something quick and okay, fun. Okay. We're going to do... We're going to play? 10 by 10. Okay, 10 by 10. We're going to have a bit of a play. Get out of your comfort zone. Okay, great. You're ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's All do right, this. Take a breath. Okay. What I like about myself is... That I do what I say I'm going to do. I beat procrastination by... Doing things. A song on my life soundtrack is... Oh, because you're free to do what you want to do. <laughs> A book that changed me is? Oh, probably The Celestine Prophecy, which I tried to read it again a few years ago and it didn't really work. But when I read it at 18, I literally thought, oh my goodness, people get a say in how their life goes. Something everyone must do. Oh, that's a good one. Something everyone, something everyone must do is? Um, I don't know, run around, run, run around in the rain naked. The world needs more women to speak up and own themselves and each other. Amen. Fear and I hang out regularly. A phrase I live by is a phrase I live by is I have a lot of different things that I live by. Um, Honour your personal integrity. Something that always makes me feel good is? Oh, there are so many things that make me feel good. Um, I really love great pop music. So I've got two young, you know, 13-year-old and 11-year-old, and I'm the one that goes, have you heard this song? Have you heard this song? And we have Saturday morning dance-offs. So I love dancing, I love music, and I love singing. So that, yeah, that always makes me feel good. Moving my body always makes me feel good. Yeah. My legacy will be? Other women experience themselves as powerful because she lived. Thank you, Kimmy. That's great. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. That's all for this episode of In The Company. I hope you've enjoyed listening and tucked away a few gems to bring to your working life. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to our channel. And if you've loved what you've heard today, please share it with your kinfolk who might also be in the need of some good company. And finally, if you feel so inclined, we'd be super grateful for a review on iTunes. 